for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Noel, I picked that one out just for you. Well, if you find it a little bit odd that in the weeks leading to Christmas, we read a passage in which the protagonist calls his listeners a brood of vipers, a passage that begins with an image of judgment, the axe laid at the root of the tree, and it ends with this image of judgment of a winnowing fork separating the wheat from the chaff, and you have to understand that for Christians, the the weeks leading to Christmas are part of the season called Advent. And it's a time in which we humbly reflect, and here's a churchy word for you, we repent ahead of the second coming of Jesus. And if Advent, as I've described, it feels a little bit out of place or out of touch with how most people experience the season... Um, there's, if there's one character that typifies the misfit spirit of Advent, it is definitely John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one that we focused on last week, the one we're focusing on this week. And as I said last week, I am willing to put down a fair amount of money that there is no one in this room who has a John the Baptist ornament on their Christmas tree, which I think is a shame. So in collaboration with my friend Nina, we, we developed one this week. We're hoping to get it into production soon. <laughs> Repent, vipers! 
I really think I will make it next year, okay? John knows that he's not preaching a populist message. And John has deliberately gone away from uh, the center of, of cultural power because he's, he's not looking for the elites to hear him. John the Baptist deliberately goes out to these uh, lonely places, to the wilderness of Judea, to the fringes of polite society, and he finds that there are people who want to hear his message, that there are people who are, are eager for truth, who are dissatisfied with the spiritual and the cultural status quo, and they find him. John's message is actually not altogether lofty. It's not a culture change kind of message. It's not going to start a revolution. Instead, John is calling individuals to repentance and to demonstrate that quite practically in the way that they live their lives, to demonstrate the proof that God is at work in their lives in some of the particularities of how they live. Uh, one of my good friends, Andrew Forrest, introduced me to a framework that originally came from an author named Aaron Wren. And this framework is one they, they calls the, he calls the three-world framework. And the framework uh, attempts to explain the posture of uh, Christianity, or the posture toward Christianity and Christian norms in American societies. So this framework is, is in different periods of time, how is culture postured toward the way of Jesus? And uh, the author says that um, pre-1994, we were living in a positive world. Pre-1994, we're living in a positive world. Meaning, before 1994, the world is fairly positively disposed, predisposed toward Christianity and the church. Uh, to be a pastor is to be in a respectable profession. People trust the words of pastors. Uh, you know, presidents want to talk to religious leaders. It's generally a positive world. And if you're living in a positive world, to be seen as Christian is a social positive. To be a Christian may mean that you advance in your job uh, because it's, it's helpful to be seen as a church-going kind of person. In a positive world, to be a Christian is, is uh, it's actually a status enhancer. And not being a Christian could actually harm you in your line of work or in any of your social goals. And this is kind of in the author's imagination before 1994. Beginning in 1994 and leading to about 2014, he says, we entered into a neutral world. And in a neutral world, to be a Christian, people could kind of take it or leave it. it is, it's a social neutral. Christianity no longer enjoys quite the cultural dominance that it did before 1994. Um, but but it's, it's not overly negative to be associated with church or with Christianity. People would respect that like they would respect any other hobby. Christianity is viewed as being a social neutral in a, in a neutral world. But the author says that after the year 2014, we began to transition into a negative world. And in a negative world, being Christ, a Christian is perceived as being a social negative. It's being out of step with, with polite society. Um, in good faith, uh, Gabe Lyons and David Kinnaman talked about how being a Christian in a negative world means that you're uh, irrelevant at best or dangerous at worst. Extremist. To be a Christian in a negative world is a social negative, especially in high-status positions. To be a Christian can mean being repudiated or, or being viewed as part of what's undermining good in society. And this is the world increasingly in which we live. 
Now, I could explain more, say more about all this, but I would just say that I do believe undoubtedly that we are living in, and, and, and even in places like Oklahoma, transitioning more and more into a negative world toward Christianity. And if you don't know me very well, you may, you may mishear the tone in which I'm speaking or the, the posture from which I'm speaking. I don't say any of this as a cultural warrior who's attempting to take back the country from anybody. I'm saying it as one who's hearing weekly complaints from people outside the church about the mean-spiritedness or the hypocrisy or, or the judgmental spirit of many Christians, and I'm also hearing it from insiders, complaints and grievances about any, any number of excesses and abuses and hypocrisies and unreflective actions of those who profess to follow the way of Jesus. Uh, in short, many people on the outside I'm experiencing, even just in my life and work, many people on the outside of the church are disinterested in the way of Jesus. And many people on the inside currently are struggling to stick with the church and the way of Jesus because the church has been experienced to be so misaligned with its own professed values. And as a result, there's increasingly this negative or critical posture toward Christianity, toward the church, toward the way of Jesus. And, and this very dynamic explains why the church in the first 300 years took such pains to alter what they called the habitus, the overall shape and scent of the life of those who are being baptized into the church. Because they knew in, in, a, in a very negative world like Roman society that was uh, antithetical to the way of Jesus, that if believers didn't operate with true and deep and abiding integrity, if the way that we lived and treated enemies and strangers alike uh, didn't smell like Jesus, then we had no credibility. The shape and the witness of their lives had to remind people of Jesus. Now, I don't say all of, this, all of this to suggest that if we just, you know, became more like Jesus, Christianity would, would be more popular, that we'd go back to being in a popular world. It's worth reminding everyone that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus, the embodiment of, of the, the Sermon on the Mount, the embodiment of all that is true and good and beautiful, was put to death for being that way. But I am of the mindset that if, if we practice less apologetics, meaning if, if, if less and less we're trying to play defense, as if we're still in that positive world and trying to guard our turf, if we practice less apologetics and offer more of an apologetic spirit for the ways in which we've not lived up to our ideals, we may find that we're, people will give us a more fair hearing. We might find that a little humility and a spirit of gentleness and less arrogant certainty and culture warring might go a long way. And to an American church reeling from its own internal disorder, the message of John the Baptist calls for a true ethical reform. He says in this first verse, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John, in this short passage, uh, you know, kind of bookended by these judgment images, gives four calls to action for those who would listen to him. The first call to action is a call to radical repentance over superficial spirituality. Radical repentance over superficial spirituality. This is what he said. He said, it said to the people listening, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You repent, you repent prove it with the fruits of your lives. 
And don't you even begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, meaning, look, we're part of ethnic Israel. We're the blessed ones. We're obviously good with God. He says, don't begin to say that to yourselves or to me, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. There's a perennial tension between things like faith and works and you know, faith without works is, is dead, but faith, you know, we, we come by salvation through faith, not works. There's a tension here. But John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. A repentant heart, a repentant posture is naturally going to effervesce. It's going to, to, to show off things like the fruits of the Spirit in the life of a person. John warns against the superficial spirituality of just hearkening back to, I was raised in church or I was raised in the people of Israel. He says, prove it with your life. We might ask ourselves in the spirit of reflection, what evidence would an, outside, an objective observer find to support the idea that my life is oriented toward the things of God? Apart from where I sit on Sunday mornings, what evidence would an objective observer find to support the idea that my life is oriented toward the things of God? John is kind of cutting through some of the, the, the half lies and half truths of polite society, and he just says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The second call of John to action is a call for sacrificial generosity over socially unconscious hoarding. Sacrificial generosity over socially unconscious hoarding. Look at verse 11. The people asked John, what should we do? John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food, extra food, should do the same. You have to imagine being in the first century, you're in a subsistence economy and John's calls for people to share their resources was especially costly. Especially on the other side of World War II, like uh, Americans are living in all kinds of excess. But in the first century, John is, John is calling for costly generosity. He's appealing to those who are wealthy. And by wealthy, he means you have two shirts. Does everybody have two shirts? You're wealthy. It's just having extra. John's calling for people to give what they have in costly ways in order to meet the needs of others. Excess here is, is quite simply like called for to be used to care for others who have less. Excess is just having one more shirt. You might ask you in the spirit of reflection, thinking about your stu the stewardship of all of your life, your time, your resources, your clothing. He specifically mentions clothing in this passage. When is the last time you gave to the point of discomfort for the sake of others. When is the last time you gave to the point of discomfort for the sake of others? And then a question for consideration is, as you, in the year, or as you, you know, are having conversations with your bosses about how income is going to change for next year, how might you steward the resources, all of them that have been entrusted to you for the sake of others, and how might you move toward sacrificial generosity? John calls for radical repentance over superficial spirituality. He calls for sacrificial generosity over socially unconscious hoarding. And then third, he calls for extreme integrity over dishonest gains. 
Look at verses 12 and 13. And extreme integrity over dishonest gains. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. And they said, teacher, what should we do? And Jesus told them, don't collect any more than you're required to. You may uh, have an appreciation for this, that, that the people who collected taxes on behalf of Rome uh, could, could use their position to gain more for themselves. So they may own the state, 10 bucks, but they're going to charge 15 as their own added on tax. And Jesus says to the tax collectors, don't add more, or don't take more than is required. It makes me think of uh, in 2014, I got invited to one of those really cool kind of trips that I was not qualified for in any way, and it just worked out great. And I was in the Dominican Republic with uh, World Vision and some, some uh, friends of, of this guy who leads a ministry in Nashville. And we, were, we had been going all around the Dominican Republic all week just looking at the work of World Vision. And, and I am like the, the youngest by far in this room. And the people on the bus are writing books and leading ministries and leading organizations. And I'm just lucky to be there and feeling really grateful. And one night we're sitting out by a fire next to the coast. The stars are bright. And this guy uh, who came on the trip was the only person on the trip not actively involved in vocational ministry. He led a Fortune 500 company. And he, he shared with us that he had just felt this growing conviction in his business practices to act out the way of Jesus. And, and as a leader of a publicly traded company, he said that he was leading his organization and their, their mission was to re-inject trust back into the marketplace. And all of us who regularly were preaching will always remember the thing that he said next. And he said with this kind of earnest longing, he said, we need a capitalism that is constrained by the gospel. And we're all like, got to write that down, got to write that down. <laughs> you think about one of, one of the greatest practical ways of demonstrating the way that we see the world is how we relate to money. Because as financial advisors could tell you, when you talk about money with people, you're talking about so much more than currency. You're talking about identity. You're talking about security. You're getting at family of origin issues. You're getting at their deepest fears and longings. And so when you have the opportunity to gain more by, by, by taking advantage of others, it says a lot about you how, you, how you handle yourself in those situations. And so you might consider the work that you do, the ways that you earn money. And you might ask quite, quite basically, are they honest? Are the ways you earn income honest? Is your work just? Think creatively. Think exhaustively. Is your work just? Are there any gray areas in your life in which you would be wise to invite guidance? Uh, I, I knew a guy who was, who was a business owner, who was very successful, who... Um, was not routinely put in a position where he was embarrassed in front of other people. And I heard a story that just floored me about him, that he took his whole business portfolio to a group of advisors and put absolutely everything on the table and said, show me where I'm in the wrong. I thought, like, it's like Jesus was Zacchaeus. Like, surely salvation has come to this house for someone to be able to say that. John called for extreme integrity over dishonest gains. And then fourth... He calls for simple contentment over coercive profiteering. I like short, simple phrases, obviously. Simple contentment over coercive profiteering. Look at verse 14. 
Some of the soldiers asked him, and what should we do? John is drawing a really diverse audience, people you might not expect to respond to the message of you brood of vipers. Soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Those two are linked. Uh, The person who has the ability to physically dominate you or to lock you up in prison is a person who can accuse you falsely and therefore extort money from you. They have the opportunity to blackmail you. Now, these are probably not Roman centurions. These are probably Jews who are working for uh, the Romans and blackmailing for profit and exploiting in order to make gains for themselves. John calls for simple contentment over exploitive or coercive profiteering. Now, in many cases, uh, folks in here may be doing honest work, and you may be doing your business with integrity, but the lack of contentment is causing a problem in your life. Now, I think that there's good ambition. I don't think that contentment means not having drive. It's different. It requires wisdom to discern the difference. Uh, But your lack of contentment is driving uh, indirect exploitation. Someone may be getting exploited as a result of your, your lack of contentment and your professional drive. So you may be working so hard to earn money, and I'm not talking about living paycheck to paycheck here. I think it's a different conversation. This is a person who, just, who needs the accomplishment or the status or, 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 or wants like, like the cherry on top to their income. You're working so hard to earn money that you're neglecting important people in your life and thereby exploiting them. It could be your spouse. It could be your children. It could be your parents. It could be your church. It could be your friendships. Or it could be that you're driving your employees so hard that they're exploiting the important relationships in their life. And one of the humbling and chilling realities is that often those who matter the most object the least when we neglect them. Often the ones who matter the most uh, object the least when we neglect them. We think we'll get around to them. But it's indirect exploitation. Or maybe the absence of contentment is causing you to exploit or rather to harm yourself for lack of rest. And you think about the, the practice of Sabbath was meant to be a gift to God's people. In Deuteronomy, when, God was, when Moses was rehashing with the people why God said Sabbath was a top ten thing that you got to do, he said, because you need to remember that we were once slaves in Egypt. And we need this day of rest to remember that we are not slaves. We're, we're, we're people who've been freed by God. God meets all of our needs. One of the, the great problems of the people of Israel, especially after the Sinai experience, was God told them, on the sixth day, gather enough for two days, because on the seventh day, I don't want you to work. And the people struggled to believe this. They struggled to obey. And there are consequences for that. It could be that given our lack of contentment, that, that ambition and drive is kicked into overdrive, and we're exploiting and harming ourselves due to lack of rest. But we are not slaves, and we are not machines. I think in an affluent society, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 could probably be memorized by everyone to all of the, like, the prophet of our hearts. Uh, this is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. 
But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's the desire to get wealthy, to be wealthy, to have the status, to have the image, to have people respect us or, or covet the things that we have. That impulse to impress through accumulation or through success, that, that's, that's toxic for us. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then Paul says to young Timothy, but you men of God, flee from this. This this is going to get you. Flee from this. He goes on to say, command those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is fleeting, but to put their hope in God who generously provides for all. Command them to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they'll store up for themselves treasures in heaven. If you want to guard against temptation, cultivate contentment. If you want to guard against exploiting the most important relationships in your life, cultivate contentment. I could ask you in the spirit of, of reflection, are you content? What steps might the Lord be inviting you to take to stop exploiting other people or yourself directly or indirectly? As I share all of this and your mind is wandering, what are those quiet voices that you need to pay attention to? I've been thinking a lot lately about uh, two quotes. Uh, one of them is by Richard Foster. I think it came from uh, Celebration of Discipline, the chapter on simplicity. He said, to conform to a sick society is to be sick. To conform to a sick society is to be sick. And then the other is from Justin Whitmell Early, who wrote a book called The Common Rule. And he, he was an attorney, and he just crashed and he was learning to pick up an orderly life. And he said, I realized that the, the, uh, while the decoration of my life was Christian, the architecture of my habits was just like everyone else. And John is not content to deal in the generalities of life. You know, the two most important commandments, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, yeah, love God, love people, tattoo it on your arm. John is not content to, to handle that in, in as a generality. It's always worked out in the, in the particularities of life. It's always worked out in what do you do with a little plastic card in your pocket? Where do you spend your time? Where do you physically show up in the lives of other people? It's, it's the architecture of our habits that so often are making us sick and making us just like everyone else. Conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Which then makes me think of, of the interaction Jesus had with the man at the pool just off the Temple Mount. The man had been paralyzed for 38 years, sitting there waiting to get into this water that was meant to be like stirred by an angel. And if you got in first, then you might be healed. And Jesus sees this guy for 38 years, has been paralyzed, and asks him what may feel like, in a, like a, a, an insulting question. He asks the paralytic, do you want to be well? which I am just convinced is one of the most profound questions ever asked by Jesus, one of the most important questions any of us can ever really come to terms with. Do you want to be well? And sometimes we can be quite at home in our disorderly hearts. We can be quite at home with our disorderly habits. 
more, more content in our, in our restlessness, more content in, in lives that, that don't give us the consequences that we want, the results that we want. Jesus respects the will and the volition of this man, and he asks him, do you want to be well? And he would ask us as well in this season of Advent where, where we're reflecting on if Christ were to return today, how are we doing How's it faring with our souls? In what ways are we being invited to repent and, and seek freedom in a greater way? And you hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. All of you who have been trained to be sick by participation in a sick society. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle in spirit. And in me, you're going to find rest for your souls. And this is the core message and invitation and gift of Advent, to return to Jesus, both in our heart and in our habits. Come and rest in His presence and let Him reorder your priorities and your practices. I admit that I feel a little bit strange preaching these repent you brood of vipers sermons in the weeks leading to Christmas. If it feels like this with the season... I think that's by design. But I do think of the scripture in James. He says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Or the invitation of the book of Hebrews. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the wilderness, calling back the story of Israel. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts and, and respond. And so in, in, in gathering with the church, we have the invitation to think big thoughts, to ask ultimate questions, to evaluate how the rest of our Sunday through Saturday life goes. And in that spirit, I want to invite you to consider what practical steps is the Lord inviting you to take to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? You love the Lord. I, I, know, I know so many of you in this room, I know that you love the Lord. I know that you would say the deep aspiration of your heart is to be a person whose life is shaped by the gospel. You're walking close to thee, you know. I know that that would be the deep longing of your heart. But, but for some of you, there may be a perennial obstacle, uh, uh, something that you've never surrendered or entrusted to the Lord. And I wonder if you might, in the spirit of holy impulsivity, resolve to take a step of obedience of some kind today to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Think of the, the line of the Christmas carol, let every heart prepare him room. I wonder how you might make room for the presence of the Lord in your life this Advent. I also know that, that uh, aside from all of this conversation, that there are people who have wandered into this room today or perhaps have been in many rooms like this and you're, you can't hear this conversation about repentance rightly because you've missed the first word in this entire conversation. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know that this message of repentance is not a message of like clean up so that God will love you, but it's actually an invitation to freedom because he loves you. It's on the basis of his, his love and his care for us that he offers us this word of correction. He offers us this word of freedom that he deeply wants you to be well. Not in terms of like some kind of cheap profit or superficial happiness, but he wants you to be well, characterized by this kind of true and deep and abiding peace. It's the kind of well that comes from a clean conscience and a content heart and a just life. 
And through the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in community, he's inviting us to have this kind of life together. We're moving into more and more greater freedom. Our lives are reflecting the justice and the peace and the wisdom of God. And maybe in in our life on its own, a little bit more together shaped by the gospel, it provides an alternate apology, a defense just in the way that we are living, a quiet and humble and gentle answer to those who think that we are absolutely full of it. Let's pray together. Lord, I think of the song. It says, we have nothing to give that didn't first come from your hands. And we have nothing to offer you that you did not provide. And so even, Lord Jesus, in the ability to respond to your word has to be like your activity at work in our hearts. The desire to say yes comes from you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd give all of us grace this morning to respond to your word. That if it's true of us today, that truthfully we don't want to, that you'd you'd help us to want to or to want to want to. Our minds can be so scattered and easily distracted, our hearts just cluttered, and, and we want things that we know aren't even good for us. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that accompanying this invitation of of John to repent would be the assurance of your Holy Spirit that you'll enable us to do it. For the person who's just imprisoned in habitual sin and locked up in chains, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would shine your light on them. And like Paul and Silas singing in the prison, that in responding to your work, Lord Jesus, you'd find that, that their chains are coming undone and the prison doors are opening up. For those in this room, Lord Jesus, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum about stewarding resources who are just very, very worried because they're the one who doesn't have two shirts. They're worried about how they're going to make, you know, pay for groceries or or pay for Christmas, ending the year, or where their next work is going to come from. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd prove to be, as you always are for us, a faithful provider. And maybe your provision for us would be based on the obedience of another in our church. Lord Jesus, we, we're so sorry and so sad about how poorly people often think of you because of us. And I pray that you'd forgive us, that you'd free us, that you'd remove from us a combative spirit and replace it with a, a, a heart that's so eager to repent. May You said you are gentle and humble in heart, and may that be true of us too, Lord. If it's true that we're living in a negative world that's postured toward Christianity, I pray that you would teach us the skills of of humility and strength and character and courage and endurance. Help us to be faithful with the things that you've entrusted to us and to trust you with what's beyond us. Lord Jesus, as we receive communion now, we pray that you would be present with us as you were present with your disciples in the breaking of the bread and wine. Make these regular elements be so much more than just that, but a means by which we experience the power of the resurrected Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. 
But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.